Welcome to the Wealthier Together podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to help women cultivate wellness in all areas of their lives. I am going to be interviewing Dr. Danica Harris, a psychologist, and she helps people deal with different types of trauma that occur in their lives. And so as we all know, trauma plays a huge role in the way that we see ourselves, the way that we take care of our health, and it especially definitely affects our emotional, mental, and our physical health. So Dr. Danica Harris is a therapist in Dallas, Texas, who co-owns Empowered Healing Dallas, a private practice where she provides trauma-informed therapy using an interpersonal and attachment-based approach. She also works as a clinical professor at Texas Women's University in the Counseling Psychology Program. Danica has particular clinical and research interests in attachment trauma, sexual assault, intimate partner violence, vicarious trauma, and oppression. Danica is also passionate about training and provides education to other mental health providers in the areas of building an advocate identity, social class, size-based discrimination, first-generation college student experiences, and trauma-informed strategies in clinical practice. She is deeply invested in social justice efforts and destigmatizing mental health treatment. And she utilizes her Instagram platform, at The Empowered Therapist, to provide education and support to the broader community. Welcome, Dr. Harris. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm so glad to be joining you today. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about your story? I touched on some points in the, your bio, but can you tell us just a little bit more about your story? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you stated, I'm in Dallas, Texas, and I co-own a private practice. And um, my journey to get to this state has been uh, a little bit non-linear, as many people's uh, journeys tend to be. Um, I actually am a, so along with some of the interests that I have, I am a first-generation college graduate, and I grew up in a working-class household. And um, so college was not on my radar so much um, as I was growing up. I was a, a pretty skilled student, so I was in honors classes and things like that. Um, but just really wasn't going to have the financial means to be able to go to college. So I actually earned an esthetician's license, which is like skincare and makeup and waxing and those sorts of things right out of high school. Um, and then years later, I was able to, to return to school. So about 10 years out of high school, I was able to return to college and, and earned a bachelor's degree in psychology and just knew I wanted to be a mental health provider. So, um, at that point, just, um, was able to secure a spot in a master's program and then a doctoral program and and here I am today. So um, it's been a long journey, but I'm excited to be able to help people um, heal from the inside out. I think that's a great point. And ironically, well, maybe not ironically, but earlier today I interviewed an esthetician. Um, she also, oh. but she has a, um, she's doing a PhD in endocrinology and she is a clinical nutritionist. So it's kind of crazy how all those combinations. So she uses all of her skills to provide better care and education for her clients. So when you said that, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think I, I knew I wanted to work with people and I knew I wanted mm -hmm. to work with people relative to like their own self-care and self-esteem and things like that. So, you know, I did what was accessible to me at the time in terms of my education. And, and I'll often say, you know, I used to help people from the outside in and now I get to help them from the inside out. So they don't feel too dissimilar in, in many ways as professions. 
Yeah, yeah. And also, I went to North Texas, which is just down the street from Texas Women. So, yay. (laughs) I saw that. I was like, wait a minute. That school looks familiar. (laughs) (laughs) So, can you tell us a little bit about what is trauma and how does it really affect our emotional and mental health? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things I've learned um, really focusing on trauma over the last, let's see, I've been seeing clients almost 10 years at this point. And I would say my own progression has really been to understand that trauma is anything that someone considers to be traumatic. Okay. So it's not my job to ever define someone else's trauma. Um, what I will say though, is that people often experience things like grief and loss as trauma, anything that's like an assault or something that causes bodily harm. I think systematic inequality is experienced as trauma in a lot of ways. Um, things like related to war and violence. And then even things like disconnections in relationships, loss of a pet, um, an interpersonal wound from an argument or disagreement. So I think it's really, it's anything that is real or perceived, like threat of harm, loss, disconnection, um, and then of course, like death of self or other. Gotcha, that makes sense. And that's true, like you mentioned, that you can't really define it for someone else because some people tend to be a little bit, well, I mean, I guess it also depends on the context. People are in different places. And so what may be traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for another. So I'm glad you pointed that out. So can you tell us what EMDR is and how you use it to help women process through trauma? Absolutely, yeah. So I think, you know, when we're talking about when we're talking about trauma, a lot of times there is there are memories related to trauma that are nonverbal um, or that are maybe even outside of someone's conscious awareness. So, you know, there's kind of a split in the in the research, the, tra- the trauma related research at this point around like, you know, is trauma best treated through talk therapy or cognitive interventions or is it better through like body based or um mindfulness-based interventions, things like that. So EMDR is kind of in the latter. It's what it stands for is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And it's actually not a new concept. This is something that's been around since the 80s. And it was originally originally designed to treat like PTSD and single incident trauma. Okay. Yeah. And so over the years, it's kind of evolved and there's other, there's a number of different ways someone might practice this similarly to how you might practice talk therapy. But I think for me, I I had some training in attachment focused EMDR, which really means that I'm able to look at like relational wounds, relational disconnection and work through like an EMDR process, which I can explain in just a second. Um, But looking at it in terms of like relational disconnection and healing, like the pervasiveness of trauma that might occur over someone's life. So rather than like a single incident, for instance, like a car accident, I could use EMDR to treat that. That doesn't tend to be the sort of trauma I see in my practice. I tend to see more like folks who have had relational wounds occur in multiple relationships across their life, a lot of times beginning in childhood. So an attachment-based approach really allows me to to hone in and focus on the um, patterns in terms of like how someone has had traumatic experiences. Okay. So it's more, if we had to talk about it as acute and chronic, so like the car accident would be something like acute, which is something that happens like recently or just one time. And then the chronic is something that happens over a period of time. Like you're saying through different relationships. Okay. 
Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. Look at it. I also think of it as like the complex nature of trauma. So okay. trauma, you know, really there tends to be like a rewiring of parts of the brain, parts of the nervous system, the ways in which we respond can be really different if we've had profound exposure or as you're calling it, like chronic exposure to trauma over time. Okay. There's, I don't know if you've heard of this book, it's called Scared Sick. Mm-hmm. And basically, I don't remember the authors because it's been a while and I just don't remember things like that. But I remember the book because I was reading it and it was talking about children that go through trauma, their risk of everything, drug use, being sex traffic, all this stuff increases because that step that, that you're saying, the rewiring of the brain or mm-hmm. and then the, the chronic experiences because they tend to experience it over a period of time. It's not like a one time thing really right. does increase their likelihood of, I mean, all of the chronic diseases, heart disease, heart attack, um, you know, obesity, it just increases all of these things. And I don't know if people are aware of that connection that trauma has even in childhood, because a lot of people, I've had clients that have gotten divorced. And so it's always traumatic for the kids regardless. But people are like, well, they're children, they'll bounce back, not realizing that if they don't, allow, if they don't help their child process it or have someone walk with and basically talk therapy with the child that there are things that can pop up later on. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's one of the important factors is, you know, I hear that language a lot too, like, you know, they'll bounce back or, or whatever. And the, I mean, the truth of it is we are resilient as human beings, we are resilient people. And that doesn't mean that there's not a profound impact when we experience when we experience that sort of like disconnection or like childhood related um, trauma, abuse, neglect, even divorce, things like that. Um, You know, a lot of times it doesn't show up until later when we're like trying to navigate relationships of our own. True. (laughs) True. You know, if we didn't have a model for that, if we didn't get to see like, well, what does a healthy relationship look like? Then it's difficult sometimes when we go to navigate that. And then we start to see some of the, it'll even sometimes manifest like, almost like childhood, like, um, like I'm going to use the word temper tantrum. I don't mean that critically of the adult. I think what it is, it's like, if you didn't learn to regulate your emotions earlier on, those kind of temper tantrums or emotional dysregulation can really play out in relationships. And then you're ending up traumatized again, instead of, you know, having a healing reparative relationship, because you don't really know how to seek that out. Interviewed a few counselors before, and they were talking about communication and how if, and if in your home you didn't have proper communication, that that will act itself out when you're communicating with your spouse, your children, and the people aren't—they're not aware of it. Right. Like someone else has to tell them, well, this is what you do. Like we can't have simple conversations about things without you getting angry. And then you know that's if the partner or the child or the spouse or whoever they're with is aware because if they also have unhealthy patterns I think that kind of predisposes people to not always and I'm not diagnosed and I'm just just in the relational aspect to having abusive relationships especially if you cannot articulate something without it's just important to be able to being angry or demonizing that other person if that makes sense Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think the truth of it is no matter if we've experienced something that we really think is trauma or not, or some, even that someone else would call trauma, we're all, when we're entering in relationship, intimate relationships, friendships, whatever, even work settings, we're taking all of our relational baggage with us and we all have it. That's true. Every every hurt we've ever experienced, every loss, we take that with us and it definitely informs how we show up. 
So it, it does take us to kind of like peel the layers back and really ask ourselves, like, what is our process when we're in relation with others? Like, how do I tend to show up? Um, and how might that be getting me what I want or not getting me what I want in relationships? That's very true. Why is it important for people to reframe traumatic events that have occurred in their lives? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, at least in the, my practice science, I think a couple things really stand out. One, we're hoping to decrease dissociation, meaning that kind of like that disconnection that someone will feel from themselves, where they may be in the room with me in therapy, but I can tell they've drifted, like drifted back into the trauma memory, or they've drifted out of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their physical bodies in front of me, but they're emotionally not, and mentally too, emotionally and mentally not present. Um, so by decreasing dissociation and increasing here and now awareness, that helps us to kind of get out of the loop of the trauma memory. And so I think of that as reframing. I think of it as helping to destigmatize or decrease the hypervigilance around the trauma so that someone can be more present. And I, and I think otherwise, you know, so trauma memories are very vivid and they can stay very fresh in our mind and they can really keep people locked into their trauma. And so sometimes I'll see someone in session and they'll say, you know, this happened to me 10 years ago. Why can't I heal? And, you know, it's not that they can't heal. It's that they haven't found a way out of their trauma yet. And if we can reframe the trauma in terms of like reprocessing in particular, if we can reprocess it where the symptoms decrease, then healing can really happen and someone can get on with their life instead of feeling trapped in their trauma. I think that's important to um, for you helping them reframe it so that healing can begin. I think a lot of people don't realize that the past does impact the present. And if you acknowledge that, and then you work on whatever happened in the past with someone who is licensed to help you do that, then you can heal and you can, I wouldn't say let it, yeah, you can let go of those toxic emotions. The yeah, event think- is still there, but yeah, you let go. Right, exactly. It's, it's being able to, um, you know, know that it happened. And of course, you're not going to just forget that it happened, but that you don't have to be as responsive to like triggers in your environment and the hypervigilance can decrease. And so, yeah, by letting go of some of the intensity of the trauma, you are able to move on. And that's when healing really can happen. That makes sense. So what are some common misconceptions about trauma? Well, you know, I think from like a cultural perspective, I think people want to have a timeline for healing. So it's like, I, I'll hear this from clients sometimes. I hear, I like I said earlier, I'm a professor too. So um, I hear it from students sometimes like, you know, I just want to be able to let it go and move on. And it's like, well, sure, that sounds good. But if we could just forget something and move forward and actually call that healed, um, there probably wouldn't be a need for therapists, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> And believe me, I would love to be out of a job if it meant that everyone was healed. And yet that's just not the reality. So, you know, I think the longer people try to push off or, or even suppress what they've experienced, I think that actually can lead to an increase in symptomology. So I think, you know, kind of letting go of the timeline, like, you know, it might take you six months to heal. It might take someone else three years, 10 years, 50 years later, someone might still be healing. And I think all of that's okay because we have to factor in all of our own individual contexts. Mm-hmm. What, you know, what does our social support look like? What have we actually done to be able to heal? Um, are we still currently in a traumatic experience? I mean, that's a lot of it too, is if you're continuously 
um, getting into a relationship or you're not able to live in an environment that's trauma-free, healing is, is going to feel impossible. So I think one of the misconceptions is that there needs to be a timeline. I think another one I hear a lot and, and I actually, I get more of these comments like on my Instagram page, um, people will want to talk about forgiveness and they'll say, you know, when, um, you know, in order to heal, you have to forgive someone who's harmed you. And I don't, I don't particularly buy into that. I, I'm not saying forgiveness is never useful. Certainly we, there are people who harm people who have no intention of harming them. And certainly there are interpersonal disconnections that occur where, where there are no perpetrators in place. It's one person who harmed another person or two people that harmed another person or harmed each other rather. And there's regret and there's remorse. And so, you know, to me, that's not where there's a perpetrator involved. But when there is someone, you know, I'm thinking about like a family member that intentionally harms another person or, you know, someone who, who really would meet the definition of a perpetrator that harms. I don't know that forgiveness has to be a focus of healing. I think you have to be at the center of your own healing. And so forgiveness may happen. I don't know that it's a mandatory part of healing though. Okay. I think it's part of the process, but I think some people who are well-meaning will push that first. And in our society, from what I've noticed, and I'm not a counselor, but from what I have noticed, especially seeing people that come in for pain, I've just realized that a lot of people mask their emotions. And so pain is not fun. Right. But if, so I've had to reframe the way I think of pain. So when I think of pain, I'm like this, your body is either telling you something is wrong or something needs to change or mm -hmm. something needs to be addressed. So if you numb it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. It just means you, that you don't feel it right as much, depending on what you're taking. But it's still there. And so I think, like you were talking about normalizing the discussion about mental health, really allowing people to, I think that people have to feel their feelings. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that your feelings should dictate your actions. So I don't think if you feel angry, you should go lash out at the nearest person. But I mm -hmm. think that it is important to go through the series. Of, like if you're feeling sadness, there's nothing wrong with feeling that. And then, because I think when you feel it, you're accepting the fact that that is a feeling you're having right now. But when you shove it down and then you shove other feelings, you just, you have to process that. And usually when someone goes to a counselor, because I have a friend that's a counselor, that's what they're doing. They're unraveling all of these emotions, basically, that are tied to events that they didn't allow themselves to process and feel during that, whenever that event happened. If, I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you that if you know, I think part of healing is also self-acceptance. And so, yes. you know, I might feel really, really sad today and I might feel furiously angry in five minutes or tomorrow and all of that's okay. That every piece of emotion is just data and it's just telling us something and it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to shove it away or even act on it like you're saying. Um, but we do have to get to a place, I think, of self-acceptance. And, you know, if I can be compassionate with all of my feelings, then I am going to be a better support for myself as I heal. So I do think that that's one of the primary goals. That is true. Self-compassion is important. I think some of us, we are very compassionate to everyone else and we encourage everyone else to feel their feelings, but we don't. Yeah. So I think it's, <laughs> especially people in the caring professionals, we have to make sure that we are also um, giving ourselves that same care, um, love and respect that we are 
telling our clients to also give themselves. So I think it's important because a lot of times either caregivers, whether they're healthcare professionals or, you know, taking care of a sick family member, people will just stuff it. But when you see what they tell others, it's not the same. So like you were saying, that self-compassion and self-acceptance, I think is very important and it's, it's overlooked in our society. Oh yeah, I completely agree. I think we get focused on like busyness and achievement and doing, and then we forget that like, oh, well, you know, if I don't attend to these feelings that are going on, um, I'm going to end up burned out. And then what do I do with that? So if we can attend each and every moment to our feelings, it doesn't mean we always get to immediately act in self-care. If I acknowledge like, you know, why am I feeling irritable today? Like if I can really be like curious even about my emotions then I'm going to do a better job of setting up my environment in a way that then I don't have to experience kind of those ups and downs in, in emotionality. I agree. I agree. So why is it important to heal in the context of community? So this is something you've touched on. Why? Yeah. You know, I think trauma just does not occur in isolation. True. And you know, if, so if I'm thinking about with my clients, like a lot of times someone will come in and they'll have, they'll be, they'll have be focused on one particular trauma and they'll, we'll kind of start there and they may tell me some details of the trauma, but really what I find is as we kind of unwrap and unravel is that there's really a system of trauma and um, because we obviously we exist in family systems or in social circles or in work um, settings or, you know, different, different family compositions and in all of these different places, we're taking all of our stuff with us. And so, you know, I think traumatized people are interacting with traumatized people all the time. And our traumas end up either, you know, they connect us to others or they help us to collide or disconnect from others. And so if we can, if we can think of trauma as a systematic problem, I think that would help survivors heal I also think it would help to destigmatize trauma and this victim blaming that's just so rampant in our culture. I think that's a big part of it. I think that's important to destigmatize it because there are a lot of communities where talking about, let's say someone has depression, people just keep it on the hush hush. And I'm just like, that's not really beneficial for that person. And it doesn't mean that you're damaged or flawed. It means that you're having a particular or a specific response to a specific stimulus, as they would say. So an event, probably someone who their, um, their father died just suddenly. And I mean, it's normal. Like they were very close Mm -hmm. to their father and, you know, it, yeah, it, it just, yeah. Mm -hmm people experience different things at different times. And I would say that sometimes we do cycle through the different emotions. So there are times when people will cycle through depression, but it's based on a situation. It's not necessarily clinical depression. There's a definite difference, but to realize that that is a norm, all seasons of life aren't butterflies and you know, yep. unicorns. And so to normalize a conversation about that, say, it's okay if you are feeling down. How can we get, you know, what can we, can I help you? Or can you go to someone that can help you process this? Or what is it that you need? But that also requires them to be self-aware and self-compassionate. So we go back to it again. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we, when we can show up 
as our full selves and like acknowledge the complexity of our experiences, we invite others to do the same. And I think, you know, part of my own growth and my own, you know, journey to become a therapist is I, I know I've gotten feedback a few times in my life about um, like from people that I've either been training or peers of mine saying something like, you know, uh, I, I saw you struggle with this, you know, with this thing, or you seem like you're not in the best mood today. And, and it's almost like they'll say like, well, it's refreshing to see you this way because I, I often see you so put together or handling things so well. And, and that has really stood out to me as important feedback that I don't want people to think I have it all together all the time because I'm, I'm not flawless and no, no person is. And so I think to me, what that has often meant is if I'm tired, it's okay if I tell someone I'm training or someone I'm working along, I'm tired. I'm not feeling like my best self today. And that really invite, and I know that's not specifically about trauma, but that really invites people to be authentic. And like, what a wonderful community we can, we could have if everyone just showed up as their authentic selves instead of as this version of themselves that they think is more palatable or um, that people would want from them, right? Like having it all together. I think that's very important. And Maybe a year ago, I was in a conversation with a group of women and um, someone mentioned, oh, she always has everything so put together. And I just remember looking at her and I was like, you better calm what you're going to say, just <laughs> comb through that. And I was like, you don't know her. We just see, we, we don't know. Just, and she doesn't know you. So we don't know that she's put together. And to me, that was more a reflection of the person saying it than that person. Because mm -hmm. just because you see someone, number one, if you don't know them, you have no context. Sure. And everyone isn't, people are different. People are very different in expressing their emotions. There have been people I've sat with on a plane that have cried and told me that they're going to a family member's funeral. There are other people that look stoic, avoid mm -hmm. eye contact. People are different. And so just because someone would be going through a hard thing, but they don't know you. I know that I'm very careful who I tell things because I don't trust everyone. If I go by my, my gut instinct and it's usually correct. Um, <laughs> when I've gone against it, it has taught me lessons. So, I mean, I, when people make those statements, I'm just like, I'm not really sure where you're getting that because we're all flawed. We all have, we, we all have things that we're not good at. But because someone is excelling in something that is visible to you, mm -hmm. I just thought it was very ridiculous to make that statement. I didn't make the person feel bad. I was just like, no, we don't, you don't know her. I don't know her. And we can't make blanket statements about people we don't know. Oh, so no, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely in agreement with you. I think, I think that's part of this whole, the whole picture of like being able to think about trauma, you know, being processed in the context of a community, like if we can acknowledge that there's complexity to each of us, even, you know, I think in the way you're telling it, I, it's like the person who made that statement was viewing that person really simplistically and not imagining that like, there's a whole nother part of this person that's like hidden from them. True. Um, but I, I do, I think that's what happens. I think what people like want to go on face value and what they see. And, and then I just don't know how much authenticity is being promoted on either side which I think is really, really important for us to show up and, and to feel safe to be our own authentic selves so that we're not maybe projecting, which is what sounds like that person might have been doing. Yeah, and there, there's the other side too, where people become so vulnerable on social media. And again, I don't, it's not my field, so I, I don't counsel, I'm not a psychologist, but just from my observation. And I'm like, I can tell by what this person wrote that they haven't processed this. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I 
I don't, I don't counsel or anything, but I can just tell by the way it's written. I just have like an instinct. And I'm just like, just because everyone is putting their stuff out there. Look, some people have processed it, dealt with it. So if you make a ridiculous comment, they have processed it. Mm. That's because some, and you can't tell on social media, like we all know highlight reel. So you don't know. And people feel forced to share like horrible things that have happened to them, like on Facebook or Instagram, my, and I always tell people, there's nothing wrong with you sharing, but make sure that you have properly processed it. You don't want strangers that don't know you to go and trigger tap because people are horrible. People can be horrible on social media. You can get a lot of support and then people can be horrible. Mm -hmm. So it's a tool depending on who has it. But if you haven't dealt with something, I think that it's better to process it in, in a safe, safe place, a self, a safe environment, instead of feeling that you're forced to just spew it on social media, because I, I know there are predators out there and I'm like, you have to be careful. You just have to be extremely careful with how vulnerable you are online these days. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things you're really getting at is like the need for boundaries and even knowing like, what are your personal boundaries and how do you know when someone else doesn't have, um, you know, strong boundaries and how, you know, their lack of boundaries may affect you because they may push for more than you're really comfortable with, you know, like a boundary violation on their part. So I do think that you're, I mean, you're definitely on to something. Social media has been like, it has helped us to be connected in all, you know, all sorts of ways with folks all around the world and have resources at our fingertips. And at the same time, it's not a very boundaried place. So True. it definitely can lead to people like in pursuit of others. Um, and, you know, I think so, it, it leads to folks at times being more reactive than in a place of being, you know, being able to process, like they may be quick to respond to someone where really what they might want to do is like go inward and really, you know, well, what's coming up for me as I want to type these words to this person right now, like, why am I feeling pulled to respond in this way? Um, so it definitely has led to like some quickness in responding that maybe isn't in, in, um, favor of like appropriate or healthy boundary setting. I definitely agree. And again, like you were mentioning before, just realizing the complexity of someone. And then you don't know what, this is why I don't, like if someone, I I don't respond to, if I can tell that there is a combative type of nature, I don't respond. Because frankly, I don't know who has pissed them off that day, what has happened. And so I just, because sometimes I'm I'm human, so I will have an initial reaction, but I'm like, we don't type when we're not, when we're not happy. So (laughs) I mean, because I don't know, someone may have triggered them, maybe someone that looked like me said something to them. I just, I don't know. And so instead of responding and then regretting it, I just leave it or I allow them to calm down. And then when people are calm, then I'm like, okay, we can engage in conversation. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's great. Like that's great boundary setting for you. Like I'm going to be over here with my boundary as it is, and you're going to act however you act or respond how you do. And like at some point, maybe we will find each other. And if not, that's okay because I don't have to sacrifice my boundaries to be responsive to someone who's maybe triggered or activated in another way. Yeah. And because social media can be triggering and I, there, there are people that will comment and I'll, it's always the same people on my feed. So I just leave that, but they're constantly triggered and this is not good for your, this is not good for your brain health, your mental health all of those neurotransmitters that are triggered. Some people are triggered multiple times a day. And I'm like, I think you need to 
detox. I think you need to step away from the computer, get into some flesh and blood community, you know, people you can touch and heal because it's not, it really isn't good. And I don't know if social media is creating other, you know, mental health issues, but there are a lot of people now that are just constantly triggered. I'm just like, this is not good for you. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. So what are some actionable steps that people can take to process through past trauma? So things they can do on their own before they get to you or another psychologist or counselor. Yeah. You know, I think anything that promotes mindfulness is really helpful because it can, that'll increase the here and now awareness. So sometimes I'll refer, you know, just friends of mine even to like download a mindfulness app. Um, there's an app on, called um, Stop, Breathe, Think. Okay. And it, and it causes it like when you're like working through the app, it'll ask you about your mood today. And you, it has you really check in with yourself, even on how you're feeling. And, you know, if you're wanting to be active or sedentary. And so there's even like walking meditations or, um, you know, ones that you could do sitting and ones that you could do in public spaces. And so it's a pretty tailored app to whatever you're experiencing at the time. Um, and and it, they have a free version of the app. So I think that's something that's pretty accessible if you have a smartphone or access to a computer. Um, as some, for some folks, I think journaling can be really helpful. Um, so, you know, finding journal prompts. Uh, there are like, there's no shortage of great ideas for that online. Um, you know, even following if, if someone wanted to try to work through some of their own healing, following a bunch of therapists on Instagram, folks that do um, trauma-informed um, or, or whatever therapy would be most beneficial for them, um, like practices and just seeing like what, what ideas do those folks have? And, you know, could I spend some time journaling about some of these ideas I'm reading about online and journaling about even my own feelings so I could help myself get into touch with that? Oh, I just also think like support groups of any kind, whether that be online or anything you can do in person. Um, you know, I think there are a fair number of things um, that aren't necessarily therapy that that are free resources in our communities that I think could still help someone to feel connected to another person. And sometimes that can facilitate healing, too. That's true. And like you were mentioning about following uh, um, therapists on Instagram, I follow, I think, 12 of them. And so whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm like, mm, should I have enforced that boundary? There's someone that has something for that specific thing. I'll just do a little scrolling. <laughs> something, someone's uh, someone's um, feed will pop up. So I will actually list a couple of the people that I follow. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but when I look at my phone, I'll list them in the show notes. But there's quite a few and yeah, I mean, I think that's a very simple way. And if you want to work with them, that's a great way to kind of get a feel for how they work with people, because a lot of it is a lot of them are sharing, not like deeply personal, but mm -hmm. they share their approach. And, you know, a lot of them are very vulnerable, kind of in the fact that they're showing you that they're human beings, too, and that they, you know, they have days where they're sad or they have days that didn't work out. That's what I mean. Not anything too, um, you know, too personal, but it get, lets you get a feel for the type of therapist you want to work with. Cause I think that people um, don't realize that sometimes you have to find someone that kind of mat, not really matches you, but you have to get along with them. Yeah. Enough yeah. I to, definitely think fit is a, an important part of therapy. Yeah. How does past trauma affect physical health? Well, when trauma is untreated, 
it can manifest in ways that doesn't even appear like trauma anymore. Mm-hmm. So we, we might see things like increased headaches or, um, you know, stomach or GI issues, um, physical pain, body pain, those sorts of things, sleeplessness. And, and you know, it, those, those factors or those symptoms, they may be related to trauma. They also look like a number of other medical conditions that someone may be coming in with. And so I think if trauma goes untreated, then it's even harder to treat down the line because the symptoms kind of morph into more of these like health-based or somatic symptoms. And then the person may be disconnected from the fact that like, oh, a lot of these symptoms started after a traumatic event. Um, So really, you know, helping to see that like, there is such a connection between what our mind and body experience and then like how things manifest later. And that I think is- if you think if that stuff's not treated, then we start seeing even, you know, coping skills like eating disorders and substance use and self-harm and things like that as a way to cope with um, trauma that, you know, wasn't initially handled. And now we have kind of this, you know, trickle effect of like, oh, there's other things to treat now on top of the trauma. That is really true. A lot of my nutritional consulting clients, anytime there is a, what I call it? Yeah, a negative relationship towards food. I always, well, I always ask deeper questions anyway, but there's always an emotional component. Always. It's never the emotional eating. It's never the weight. So those are like triggers for me. I'm like, okay, so let's go back. Where did this start? And I've, I've realized that a lot of times it's emotional trauma mm-hmm. that they experience in childhood and the way that they're eating is coping. So since you're talking about like a lot of trauma occurs in families, again, a lot of it is tied to families and, you know, people want to maintain those relationships. You don't want to just chunk your family out. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, most people don't. And for the most part, most people don't need to. They don't, you know, they are safe in, in there family context. It's just there are some patterns that are not working for them. And when I talk to them, I'm like, well, you know, when, when do you sense this, that you feel triggered to eat emotionally or, you know, eat the ice cream or eat the full cake? And it's always after being kind of in that context of that, of the family dynamic, but now, and something triggers them. Someone's, someone says something and they go back to that initial incident that happened when they were a child. So I always tell my clients that have that, I'm like, you are aware that I cannot help you process that emotional component. You need to find someone that can help you process that emotional component. And then the tools that I'm sharing with you will be more effective. And so I always leave that because you can tell me what happened and they do, but I'm like, I can't help you process it. Mm-hmm. So it is your responsibility to find someone that can help you walk through it. Cause mind you, they're like in their thirties and forties. So it's not like it, it's yeah. I'm like, I can't process that with you, but I can listen to you and I can help you feel heard, but mm-hmm. you got to process it. So you can stop this pattern right now and you can move on because they, they want to be there for their families. They don't want to, you know, pass these patterns on to their children. And so that is one thing I've noticed that has been linked to almost anyone that has either disordered eating or emotional eating. Yeah. And, you know, I think like from the therapeutic perspective, like 
I think a lot of times people will come in with a lot of like self-hatred or self-criticism around, you know, like a coping mechanism around like emotional eating, as you're saying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think from my perspective, whatever you've done to survive after a trauma is the right thing. And there may be better ways to cope, right? Like even thinking about like substance use and, and someone who, you know, harm self harms, like, sure, those are not overly adaptive in the long term. But if it's helped you to stay alive and it kept you from ending your life or, or what have you, I'm not going to criticize that for a client. I am going to sit with them in it and help them, you know, like wonder about if we were to work on some of the trauma and work on some healing, might you want to treat yourself in a different way? And might you be more on your own side? And a lot of times that's really what it's about is like, there ends up being this like double down of judgment where they're, they're critical for themselves of themselves for not getting over the trauma and then critical of themselves for whatever they've done to cope. And Mm -hmm. so I I think one of my jobs is often to like, let's pull away the criticism and just say like, okay, you want something to be different and there's room for that to happen. We also have to acknowledge that you've been through something really painful and like, can you honor and validate and acknowledge that for yourself too? That is very true. Usually when they get to me, they're like, I want this gone, but they just don't realize what that underlying thing is. But I do, it has gotten them this far. I do think it's important to look at what has gotten you to this point Mm -hmm. and then help you help them create a new reality by figuring out what they can do to, or who they can become Mm -hmm. so that they get that end goal. Because usually mm-hmm. no one wants to be like, oh, I want to emotionally eat forever. You know, it's, they're like, well, I see that I'm gaining weight and I don't like it. I know that I have, for the most part, they can pinpoint it, but they just don't tie it to that emotional um, thing. So they want to be better. They're coming. They're like, hey, I want to change this. It's just really connecting them with someone that can really help them process basically where they've been, uh, where they are now, and then where they, they want to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So what is the most important thing that providers can do to empower people who have survived trauma? I think, you know, I really wish that um, graduate schools did a better job of helping folks to be trauma informed when they when they go out into the world and are uh, licensed professional counselors or therapists. And, and I think the reality is it just takes additional training to, to really have trauma informed practices. But I think like simply one thing like all of us can do is we can believe people. We can believe survivors when they tell us their stories. I think, you know, validate them rather than challenge, at least initially. Sure, we all need to be challenged. Um, But survivors are challenged in the culture so regularly that if we could just believe them and accept them as they are, that's often step one in healing. We're able to model for them what acceptance looks like. And then I think, you know, anything that promotes autonomy will promote healing. So a lot of times for trauma survivors, the trauma has become their, the central character of the client's story. And so it's like the trauma is like, if you were to imagine like a novel or a book, like the trauma is the main character and everything kind of is dictated by the trauma, but helping the client to really become their own central character so that the, the story is really about them and the trauma is one aspect of their story, but there are many other aspects to their story as well. And so I think helping someone to see themselves as complex, but not as bad, not as like um, faulty for something that, you know, was completely outside of their control happening for that to them and really helping them to see that like healing is possible. And if I can have hope when I sit with someone 
then that helps to instill hope in them too. And I think that that's a huge part of being trauma-informed. I think that's very important. The hope part is when people lose hope that um, things become a little bit more difficult, but that hope that, especially like you're saying, validating them and then allowing them basically to feel like they can share in a safe place because we, I feel that we have fewer and fewer places that we can call safe. So yeah, just creating that environment and facilitating that environment where they can tell you what their emotions are and, and be able to, I think what happens is they're processing it as they're telling you Mm -hmm. and they're kind of, well, not always, I don't know the entire process, but maybe they're coming, they're coming to terms or finding peace and being able, because some people hold on to things for a long time and they don't tell anyone. And that's yeah. never good. So I think that um, definitely creating that space where they can not feel shame, where they can tell their story and have that opportunity for someone to listen and then to help them in that, in that healing and growth process. I think yeah. that's very important. Yeah, absolutely. And encouraging them to, to, or teaching them, helping them to learn how to pace their story too. Because I think you're right. Sometimes people don't share it for whatever reason, maybe fear of shame or maybe having been shamed before. Sometimes I think people are over eager to share their whole story. Um, and they think that like, well, if I continue to talk about it, I'm going to be able to move past it. And really sometimes even retelling the story over and over can be triggering. So I think helping clients to pace their story and, and again, like put themselves at the center so that like, as you're telling the story, I get a sense of who you are and how you feel even today as you speak to me about this trauma. Um, and I think that that's a different perspective than, than people typically get in their, their like social relationships. I think that's true. I've had a couple people overshare and I'm just like, I don't know, for me, it makes me feel uncomfortable because I'm just like, mm, I listen because that's what I'm going to do if I'm sitting with someone. But I do agree that sometimes oversharing may not be in that person's best interest. Yeah. Um, so I, I do, I have seen that and I do agree with your um, pers- perspective on that. Mm-hmm. So um, this has been a really wonderful interview. So where can people find out more about you? Yeah. So if you're on Instagram, I am um, at the empowered therapist and I post content there a number of times a week and share some about myself and my practice there. I also am available through my website, which is www.empoweredhealingdallas.com. And my email address is on there and the phone number I can be reached at, as well as some information about both myself and my business partners, um, approaches to therapy and things we specialize in and those sorts of things. Wonderful. Again, thank you again, Dr. Harris, for sharing all of your expertise and allowing us to realize how the the complex healing process that it does take for people to heal from trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Wealthier Together podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and share this podcast with a friend.